All right, good morning. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you to turn to two passages as we get started. Of course, Hebrews chapter 3, that's where we'll be, but a passage that we're going to read together, uh, kind of to start with, is Psalm 95. Psalm 95. And as you're getting to that passage, I guess I need to turn there also. Um, <clears throat> remember where we are here and what we're doing today. We're parking this morning on this warning passage, but we'll explain more about that in just a moment. But um, three big Three key words to understand the big picture of the book of Hebrews. What are those three words? All right, person, priesthood, and principle. And what those mean, of course, is the book of Hebrews is all about the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's better than fill in the blank. There's a lot of comparisons made throughout it. Um, but he is superior because of his person of who he is, all right? And in, and that basically covers the first four chapters. I didn't want to have to click through all those slides again or go through the trouble of getting in and out of the presentation mode. Uh, so I figured we'd just do this verbally this morning. But uh, the person of Christ, he's superior in his person because of his deity, and that's what chapter one emphasizes, but also he's superior in his person because of his humanity, all right? And chapter 2 mostly is about that. And then chapter 3 and really into chapter 4, uh, he is superior because of his faithfulness. His person is superior because of his faithfulness. He's God, he's the perfect man, and he was perfectly faithful. All right. And then uh, his priesthood, really chapters 5 through 10 talk about that, his superior priesthood his superior principle, and that is faith in him because of who he is and what he's done, which is emphasized in his priesthood. Uh, it, the superior principle is faith in him. That's what's uh, emphasized at the end of chapter 10 through chapter 13. All right, so again, every week, most likely, we're going to try to review those three words because, again, if you can just remember those three words, then you can start filling in details under them, but that helps... Just think through the big picture of what the book of Hebrews is all about. All right, so in, um, in the first part, which is the first four chapters, basically, talking about the superior person of the Lord Jesus, all right, we, uh, we, we see that um, he's superior, as we said, because of his deity, his humanity, his perfect humanity, and his faithfulness. And so in chapter 3 uh, and into chapter 4, talking about his faithfulness, we, we uh, talked about in verse 1, considering Jesus' mission. There's two words that are used to describe him there, apostle and high priest. Of course, apostle, in a sense, reflects, not really in a sense, but it does reflect the fact of his mission. He was sent from God on but the high priest aspect reflects the opposite. He goes, if you want to say, he goes back to God on behalf of man. All right, and so we're to consider that, as verse 1 says. And then there's a comparison we see 
uh, the next several verses of Jesus and Moses. Of course, Jesus was completely faithful. Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus was completely faithful, and he's, he's faithful. He's the son over the house. M Moses was just a servant in the house, all right? And then the, uh, the third point under that, talking about his faithfulness, is this warning passage that's really verses 7 in chapter 3 through verse 13 in chapter 4. And in the scope of the context here, you could say this is talking about we need to contemplate which really could be the same as consider, but think about Jesus' rest. There's a rest that Jesus came to secure and that he offers, all right? And really the warning is about missing that rest, and we'll get back to that. And then we also then last week went and finished the chapter, uh, finished the section in chapter 4, uh, that we, the fact we need to have confidence in Jesus' priesthood, verses 14 through 16 of uh, chapter 4. So that's kind of the outline for, for these chapters here as far as uh, the big points. So this morning, we had said last week that we wanted, we, we kind of, we, we talked about it very briefly, but then we wanted to go back and look at this warning passage, right? This is the second warning passage. There's five, you could describe them a couple ways, serious warnings. That, I mean, and that's what they are. They are serious warnings, all right, that you find in the book of Hebrews. And in one way or another, they have different angles, but in one way or another, they're all warning of the same thing. Salvation in Christ is obviously important. Salvation in Christ is serious. It's not to be taken lightly. And we should very seriously consider that we're not missing it, is the idea of all of these warnings to some, some angle or another. All right, we saw the first warning, which was a very brief passage, the first uh, four verses of chapter 2, uh, and really that warning had to deal with uh, the danger of not obeying God's Word slash God's Son, all right, because really they go together. If you're, uh, and, and, and remember again, just to recap that, if, if Old Testament Israel was punished for disobeying the Word that was given by God through angels and, and even prophets and so on, how much more greater would be the punishment for disobeying God's word that was given to us, brought directly to us, spoken directly through his own son? I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's a serious comparison to think about there, all right? And so there is seriousness of this. And, and, it, and I think many times in independent Baptist circles, to say that way, uh, you know, salvation is something that's really taken very lightly many times. It's just this, you know, uh, as long as we, you know, whatever, but, you know, pray this prayer when we're safe and all this kind of thing. That's not what the Bible teaches, all right? Salvation is a relationship with God, and it's a relationship that we have because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we enter into that relationship with Really, and I'll word it this way, with serious contemplation, with a serious understanding of our sin and a repentant attitude toward God because of our sin. And as we mentioned, we saw last week, really that involves a, a submission, a submissive attitude to Him because the whole essence of not being saved is that we are in a condition of rebellion against God. I mean, that's what, that's what Adam did in the garden, right? 
when he brought sin on mankind, he, he was rebelling against God. In fact, in verse 17 of Genesis 3, God words it this way as he's confronting Adam and Eve, and then even the serpent there in the garden, he said that because Adam hearkened unto his wife, now, guys, we could probably jump on that and go along with but, you know, but the point in, in the context is he didn't listen to, he chose that rather than hearkening to God. That's the point. So therefore, he was rebelling against God. He, he made a choice, all right? Eve was deceived, and Adam made a choice when he sinned, all right? And there's, there's a difference in there, and there's a difference, uh, you know, God holds held Adam responsible for that. All right, now, so it's a serious thing, all right, that's the point. And we enter into that through, through this, this serious, if you want to say, understanding, contemplation, but it's faith in Him, all right, in what God says about it, what God says about us, what God says about who Christ is, and what God says we need to do, which is to come to Him through Christ. I mean, there's a lot of words that the Bible uses throughout to describe salvation, even what we do in order to be saved, okay? And in this passage that we're going to see this morning, we're going to see some descriptions given that are not your typical independent Baptist descriptions, okay? But the point is, they're given to these people that were part of the recipients of the book of Hebrews, and um, I mean, the book of Hebrews was written, obviously, we didn't spend time on this in the introduction, but it's obviously written to a congregation that's made up primarily of Hebrew believers. Now, like any church in the New Testament, it's very possible, in fact, yea, likely, that there were some unsaved people in that group, people that really hadn't been saved, and that's, that's normal, okay? Uh, and part of the book, the, the purpose of these warnings in Hebrews is to get the attention of these people, that this is a serious thing. Even, you know, there's nothing wrong with saved people stopping and evaluating uh, and, and seriously considering, all right? It's not a matter of we dwell on all the time, you know, I don't think I'm saved, and the, but I mean, are we saved? Well, it's not bad to do a checkup every once in a while. I mean, that's kind of what the whole purpose of the book of 1 John is, all right? And the, the result of that is we can know, as 1 John 5, 13 says, we can know that we're saved, all right? And there's reasons for that. We're not going to get into all those this morning, but I'm trying to give you an idea of what this whole warning's about, all right? Now, as we get into this, we'll have a word of prayer here real quick first, and then we'll read... Psalm 95, sorry, I announced that passage. We'll be in Hebrews 3 and then into 4, but hold your place there. We're going to read from Psalm 95 first, right? Because you'll see more than once in the passage in Hebrews, this is the Old Testament scripture that's referred to. It's quoted at least two or three times in this, uh, in this warning passage of Hebrews. So I think it's important that we read that and get a kind of an understanding of what that psalm is in its context, okay? And it's only 11 verses, so it's not real long, all right? And we read chapters 3 and 4 last week together, so we, we won't read those together in that sense this morning. We'll be looking at them as we go through them, all right? So uh, Psalm 95, we'll read there momentarily. Let's, let's have a word of prayer first, and then we'll, we'll do that, and I'll ask pastor to start, and then just pick up as normal going around. 
whoever wants to read. All right, so let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for just this opportunity this morning to look at your word and help us to have the right understanding, right consideration of your word. And, and Lord, to take things seriously, uh, because this is a very serious matter. And I pray that you would help us to, to grasp that, to understand that. And then, Lord, also, again, if, if uh, you know, for, for those of us who are saved, to just be reminded of, of course, what you've saved us from and the seriousness of this. But if there are any who may not be saved here this morning, Lord, they may kind of fit in and, and all of this thing it's, as far as, uh, you know, in, into the outward and the big picture. But, Lord, maybe they've, they've not come to a true relationship with you. And our purpose this morning is not trying to cause people to doubt that if they are saved. But, Lord... As this passage says, it's a, it's a serious matter. We need to give serious consideration to it. And I pray that that would be the case today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. For his sake we pray. Amen. All right, Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth, and strength of the hills is also his also. The sea is his, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. <clears throat> he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice. Harden not your heart, as in the provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation, and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my way. Unto him I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. All right, this in the psalm here, all right, You'll notice when we get, when we turn back to Hebrews in just a minute here, you'll see that basically part of beginning about, you know, toward the end of verse 7 on down through verse 11 in the psalm is what is quoted in Hebrews 3, referred to as well in, in Hebrews 4. Um, it's not so much the first part. The first part of the psalm kind of is an offering of praise to God and then really a warning, all right? Because he's our God, we're the people of, the, of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And then he refers back to previous uh, experiences in the children of Israel's history where they, many of them, all right, hardened their heart toward God. They never really believed God and they missed out. All right, that's the point. They ended up uh, wandering in the wilderness, and, uh, and, and they, they missed out on what God had promised them and had offered them because of unbelief. That's the point. And at the very last part of the, of the psalm, notice it says, Unto whom I swear in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. That's, that's important to understand that. All right? It's not a matter that they're going to get kicked out of my rest. It's not a matter of, you know, uh, I'm going to run them back out, whatever, but they never got into the point of his rest, okay? Now, you'll see, go ahead and turn to Hebrews, you'll see how that idea of rest is likened to salvation, a relationship to God in Christ, okay? 
And understanding what that psalm's saying, again, is, is important because that's the psalm that's leaned on heavily uh, in, in this portion of Hebrews here. Um, but the second warning passage, which again begins in verse 7 of chapter 3, and you'll notice the first word wherefore, but then you'll see a parenthesis, okay? And then 7 down through verse 11 here is quoting what we just read in Psalm 95, verse 7 through 11, all right? So I'm not going to reread that, but that's, he's referring right back to that passage, okay? Um, but verse 7, he says, wherefore, now let's skip over to verse uh, 12, where you see the rest of the statement, wherefore take heed, brethren. Now stop for a second, all right? You can see that just the idea is this is something that's stated to get your attention, to get someone's attention, to listen up. Wherefore, take heed. To take heed means to pay close attention to, all right? So take heed, brethren. Now, when he says brethren here, he's not saying that all the people that he's writing to are necessarily saved, all right? It's kind of just a, a loose term. In fact, uh, I mean, every, everything in the Bible has context, right? And so, I mean, he started the chapter as uh, referring, singling out people. He says, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. This is different here. He just simply says brethren, all right? But, I mean, Paul, uh, Stephen, Peter on the day of Pentecost, all of these men, they were Jews, of course, but all of these men in preaching to unsaved people called them brethren, because they were Israelites, and, and I mean, so there, in other words, what I'm saying is when you see the word brethren here, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's, he's, what he's saying is to save people, because you can obviously see that he's not saying this to save people. He's saying, giving this warning to people that are blending in with people that are saved, but they're really not saved, okay? Uh, and, and this is a passage, by the way, it's one of the several passages in the New Testament that people that... And, and again, I'm not trying to be unkind to anybody. I hope you understand that, but I don't know how, any other way to refer to it as this. But people that don't believe or don't want to teach the, that the Bible teaches that people that are in Christ are eternally secure in Him, all right? Sometimes that's called eternal security, all right? The security of the believer, all right? Secure salvation. You can say it in different ways. Uh, but in other words, when a person is saved, they're forever saved, all right? Now, by the way, I'll just be up front with you. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. When a person is saved, they're always saved. And I think there's Bible reason to say that. All right? And we're going to look at some of that this morning. All right? Um, but this is one of the passages that people that don't believe that, that believe, you know, you, it's possible for you to become unsaved. Now, that's kind of a weird way to say it, isn't it? That's not the way it's typically said by people with that persuasion, but and when I say that, again, I'm not saying that looking down on them or anything like that. There's a lot of well-meaning people and, and so on. Uh, in fact, this is a passage, I don't know if Tim remembers this, but a number of years ago, Tim and I had some interaction with a, a young man, and I guess I won't say his name just in case, but uh, a young man, and we spent quite a bit of time with him, uh, numerous occasions looking at scripture and so on, and he, he had, I mean, he seemed to have a real desire to serve the Lord and was trying to preach and various things, but he, because of his background, I guess, and various things, he had a hang-up on this doctrine. And he just, he just was convinced that the Bible was teaching that a person could lose his salvation. And this is the, one of the passages that he tried to take us to in looking at this, all right? 
so when you look at this in its context and not just take out a phrase out of one verse or two here, uh, it obviously makes a difference, okay? Everything obviously has a context. But uh, his, his point, in fact, I'll just point it out. In verse 12, notice it says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Now notice the last phrase, last statement in verse 12. In departing from the living God. Right? And his point was that means someone can be saved and they can depart from that. They can leave it, whatever. Okay. Now, if that's the only thing you're looking at, it might be possible to come to that conclusion. All right? But when you even look at this statement in its context of these verses, you'll see it's not talking to and about people that you know, left God. It's talking about people that never got there. The whole point of this warning is not, in fact, I'll word it this, this way, it's not losing one's rest, it's missing the rest, not getting to the rest, okay? That's the point. It's not a matter of losing it, it's a matter of not getting there, all right? And uh, in many ways, salvation in the Bible is pictured in a variety of ways, but it's pictured as, okay, it's something that someone has to arrive at, something that, you know, that they get to, all right, uh, because of many things. And, and I likened this last week in, and I don't remember the whole context of, of this illustration, but if you pulled up in the parking lot, sat in your car out there, can you say honestly that you went to church? Well, again, you know, so you might argue, well, I was there, all right? But again, that's not the intent, right? The intent is you come through that door and you come in, you enter in, and you're here, you're part of. I mean, you see what I'm saying, okay? And so, uh, but this warning is about something like that, that people, they're, they're kind of there, all right? They've approached They've come close, but they never crossed the threshold and came in, so to speak, all right? That's the people in view of this and really the other warnings in the book of Hebrews, all right? Chapter 6, when we get there, we're going to see a very similar warning. It's worded different than this one, but a very similar, and it's one of the other passages that people go to for that. But again, it's, it's, when you look at it in its context and all that, it's not what it's saying, okay? But it's talking about people that never fully came in. They never got there, right? They, they got close. They were, you know, curious and, and had some interaction and so on, but they never truly got saved. In fact, I'll tell you, from, and I'm not going to give you the whole story, but in my personal experience, I, I had that experience of being right there for years, years. And then through some things that, you know, the Lord allowed and brought into my life and various things, he helped me to see that I never really went in. Uh, I mean, so the point is, a lot of people think, well, how could that be? Well, it's, it's extremely possible and extremely common, all right? Everybody has unique circumstances and different, you know, specifics in their lives but everybody who is saved, if, you, if you're honest about it and you think about it, you can look back and see a path that God brought you on to bring you to salvation. It's not just like you wake up one day without any kind of interaction and like, oh, I think I'm going to get saved today. No, I mean, God uses all kinds of people 
And, and God may put somebody across your path just for one specific purpose. Just open your eyes to one thing, you know, I mean, just to help you take another step in that direction. And then he brings somebody else that, you know, because of something they say or do, you, you know, he brings you another step. I mean, that, that ha- that's common. That's common. In fact, again, we, uh, we oftentimes don't talk about it that way or think of it that way, but that's really the way it is. God uses all kinds of things to bring us to the point of salvation. All right, so let's, <clears throat> some of those things said, all right, let's jump in here. And as we have time, we'll go to some other passages to reiterate uh, the points that are made. But he says, the, the warning is, wherefore take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. All right, now the warning here is, beware of unbelief. All right, and that's, that's interesting when you just think about it that way because that's what it is. It's not a matter of not having enough belief or enough faith. It's faith or not. You know, salvation isn't a matter of believing enough. It's believing or not believing. It's, it's a, a point of, again, coming over a threshold, again, to, to word it that way. All right, you can get up there, knock on the door, look in the door and all kinds of things. But until you cross that threshold and are in, you're not in. I mean, you could have the window open and be listening to everything and, and enjoy it somewhat. And, and, but until you come in, you're not in. I mean, that's the point. OK, so beware of an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another. So the, what he's saying is, the, what he's telling people here is, a way to help avoid that is to exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you should be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, those that haven't come to belief yet, the longer that they're in that condition, the more possible, you might say it is, to come to a point to where they never do because they've hardened themselves against it. They've got used to it. And I don't need it, you know. I know, you know. I mean, whatever the exact reasoning and so on is in a person's life, they can be hardened to salvation and never come to it, all right? Uh, and it's because, and he, he says, through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, that that could be a lot of things. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to commit some, you know, heinous sin to where, you know, that you're, you're, you're not going to be saved. That's not the point. The point is sin is deceptive, period, isn't it? And uh, unbelief is a sin, by the way, but sin is deceptive and deceitful. And then note verse 14, for we are made partakers of Christ. Now, here's another interesting statement. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. All right, now, some people say, well, this is a condition to be saved, that we have to endure, you know, persevere, endure to the end in order to be saved. Well, that's not really what the passage is saying, all right? And again, we could look at numerous, numerous uh, portions of Scripture to, to back up this principle, but the bottom line is a person who is saved their faith will endure, all right? Um, and remember, in the, in the bigger context of Hebrew, this is in the section that's talking about 
Christ's faithfulness. All right? And in reality, uh, I wrote a statement on here somewhere if I can find it. He, Jesus, demonstrated His faithfulness to God's, to God's Word, God's plan, God's will, etc. If we have genuine faith, it will result in faithfulness as well. Not necessarily perfect like His, of course, but it will result in us continuing to trust God. A person that comes into faith in Christ, they'll remain there. That doesn't mean that things don't happen and cause you to say, why God and, and all this, you know. But the point is, you're not going to leave your faith. Your faith is there, all right? And again, remember, the, as we, particularly as you get down in chapter 4, you see this. It's not a matter of, of leaving the rest. It's a matter of never getting to the rest, Okay? Um, verse 15, he says, while, whiles, while it is said, and he quotes from Psalm 95 again, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. So part of what he's saying is he's referring back to that Old Testament example where Israel came to a point as a whole, all right, because of maybe you say the influence of, of a number of them, but they came to a point to where they their unbelief in God was exhibited and God said, okay, that's it. You're not going into the promised land. It's interesting, Psalm 78. Psalm 95, the one we read, is anonymous. It's not, there's no heading on it that attributes, attributes it to anybody. But we'll see in chapter 4, verse 7, that Hebrews attributes it to David. Okay, But in Psalm 78, which was written by Asaph, uh, it, it, which just trivial thing is is the second longest of all the psalms psalm 119 of course being the longest but psalm 78 is the second longest of all the psalms but it's a historical psalm but asaph refers back to israel's past sin and unbelief numerous ways and times and in talking of this same instance which would be in numbers 13 and 14 at kadesh barnea when the spies went into the land remember that that's when you know when the people exhibited their unbelief there and God said, okay, enough's enough. I'm drawing the line. God had given them so many opportunities to believe him, to trust him. I mean, think about all the things that he had done and he showed them that they saw firsthand. And yet they wouldn't believe. It's not that they believed and then stopped believing. They never came to believe in him. I mean, a lot of people that came out of Egypt were just following the crowd. But they weren't all believers, all right? And we see that here in this passage as well as in Psalm 95 and so on. But anyway, in Psalm 78, in verse 41, I think it is, Asaph makes this statement. He says they tempted God, and then it's, he says that they limited the Holy One of Israel. That's an interesting, uh, that, that phrase has always captivated my thinking. They limited God. You ever thought about that? I mean, can we limit God? God's all power. Well, the point is, God couldn't do what he wanted to do because they wouldn't trust him. God wanted to take them all into the promised land. That was his plan. That was his desire. But they had a responsibility in getting there, and that was to trust him. And many of them just never did trust him. Some simply refused to trust him. They were very hardened, okay? Um, 
Uh, and, and again, he keeps referring back to this in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 here. All right, now verse 16, let me, for some, back in Hebrews 3, 16, for some when they heard did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? Now again, notice what he says, who had sinned, all right? But as we'll see as we read further, their sin was not that they, were, they, you know, they believed they were saved and then they lost it because they sinned. Their sin was they never really trusted him. That's the point, all right? Because notice he says, uh, verse 17, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness, and 18, unto whom he sware that they should not enter into his rest, all right? In other words, it's not a matter that they got kicked out of his rest. They, they walked out. They never got into it. All right. Then he says, but to whom, but to them that believe not. That's who he said that to. They're not going to enter into my rest because they haven't believed. All right. So we see that they could not enter in. Verse 19 makes it clear. Why couldn't they not enter in? Verse 19. What's it say? Because of unbelief. All right. They never got in because of their unbelief. Then verse uh, chapter 4, right? Let us therefore. Now, you, this is kind of the second part of this warning. The first one is, again, it's warning of unbelief. Warning of unbelief that can bring a hard heart. And when a person gets a hard heart, they're saying no to God. All right? Chapter 4, continuing the warning, now stresses the result of that unbelief, which is, Missing the rest that God provides. All right? So, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left of us, lest, can't talk, lest, a, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. All right? Now, uh, the, the, the wording here, let us therefore fear. Now, that should strike some tone of seriousness there. Fear this. We should be afraid of missing his rest if we're in that condition. It, I mean, it's a serious thing. It's nothing to toy with. It's nothing to play around with. We should be fearful. As uh, other places, I can't think of the exact reference now, uh, says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's not, this is serious stuff, all right? Uh, but he says, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left, left us of entering into his rest. And the idea is, unless the promise leaves us because we're not believing, all right? It's not that God's changing his word. God's given the promise, but there's only one way to claim that promise. And that's to believe it. You have to come to faith. You have to embrace it, all right? But not everybody does. You know, there's a lot of people that are familiar with it, that know about it, that have read Scripture after Scripture, but they never have fully claimed that promise. They've never come to faith in Christ, all right? So the, the consequence of this unbelief is missing it. That's the point. For unto us, verse 2, was the, uh, was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. 
For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this, uh, on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. He's quoting from Genesis 2 and uh, Exodus 20, Exodus 31 there and so on. But in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, now notice verse 6, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, now stop here for one second, and I don't have time to talk about the whole reasoning of this, but Jesus in verse 8 here is not the Lord Jesus Christ, this is Joshua, all right? Look at it, you'll never find the name Joshua in the New Testament. It's the name Jesus, all right, comes from the Greek, and Joshua comes from the Hebrew, but Jesus and Joshua are one and the same name, all right? Um, Just, again, it's a matter of language and so on, but that's who it's talking about in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, talking about, you know, the children of Israel in the promised land, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day, all right? Because our psalm that he's talking about, Psalm 95, that was written hundreds of years after the children, Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land. But again, they didn't all have rest. Even people that physically went into the promised land still weren't believers, all right? They really weren't there enjoying the rest of God because they weren't there in faith. They were just there, all right? And again, you know, same thing, coming out of Egypt, going into the promised land, Not everybody that partook of those physical actions were true believers in God. All right, as a whole, God was delivering Egypt, I mean, Israel from Egypt and so on, yes, but not every Israelite who came out of Egypt was a believer. So spiritually, they weren't in God's rest, okay? And even those that went into the promised land in that second generation, not every one of them was a true believer. So they weren't spiritually in the rest that God was providing. Let me hasten on here. Time's flying. Um, There remaineth, uh, verse 9, there remaineth therefore rest to the people of God. For he that entered into his rest, he he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. All right, when you get to the rest, the idea is there's no more labor, there's no more work because it's a finished thing. Okay, but notice verse 11. This is interesting. All right. Let us therefore, he's drawing the conclusion of this warning now, let us therefore, what's the word? Labor to enter into that rest. All right? Let us therefore labor to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So he's not saying that we labor in order to be saved. Okay? Because salvation is not of our works. Salvation is because of what Christ has done. All right, but the Bible often, in fact, I wanted to give you, I got, I'll give you some scriptures. We might, we're not going to have time to look at all of them in the last few minutes here, but the Bible often, in fact, Jesus himself more than any other person in the Bible refers to salvation as something that is a difficult thing to find. It's a difficult thing to enter into. It's difficult because of our human nature. That's the point. It's not because we can't work to, I mean, because it's not of our works. 
but pride gets in our way. Pride is one of the, the, the worst things. I mean, it, the, pride is probably, and I'm just stating this as my personal observation, okay, but pride is probably the biggest obstacle there is to people getting saved. In order to be saved, a person has to humble himself before God. And pride is probably the biggest obstacle that a person faces. I know for me it was, okay? But, uh, but the Lord Jesus often uses language that describes salvation as something that is difficult. And it's not talking about, you know, that, that it's hard to get saved, okay? I mean, because salvation is simple in a way, yes, but it's hard for people to come there because it involves humility. It involves a surrender, a repentance. It involves putting oneself fully at God, you know, in God's hands. You are taking control off. I can remember if it was last Sunday or the Sunday before, talking about driving, you know, and the and Yeah, the fellow with, I can't remember, Shane, Shane in the car, and, you know, his biggest thing was, you know, not having control at first, had to get used to it to trust it, and so on like that. I mean, and that's, that's a lot of people's hang-up when it comes to really getting saved, because they're not in control. And we like to be in control, all of us do to some degree, I mean, that's, that's part of human nature, right? But think of that, turn that, let's, let's do this real quick, if we've got a few minutes here. Go back to the book of Matthew. And we'll just look at a couple passages here. Matthew chapter 7 to begin with. I just, what, I want, what I'm trying to show you is some of the statements that Jesus makes about salvation, again, that are far different than most, than a lot of, you know, independent Baptist preachers even say about salvation, okay? Uh, not all, but of course, but some. Look at verse 13. Matthew 7, this is the closing chapter of the Sermon on the Mount here, but verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate. Everybody's heard this, all right? But notice carefully what Jesus is saying. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate. Now, the word for is because. Because wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. So the, and he says, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And notice what he says. And few there be that, what's that next word? Find it. And it's, here it's not just that they just don't go in it. They don't even find it. All right? So think of this. What, what are the words that are used here? Straight versus wide. Broad versus narrow, right? But the word straight, anybody understand what that word straight means here? All right, this is an old English word used in the king. This is not like straight in the sense of a straight line. The, the word straight here means restricted. It's difficult. It's narrow. All right? It's not easy to get through. Now, when you think of that, of what Jesus is saying, that goes against what many people seem to think about salvation. And again, he's, not try, he's definitely not trying to discourage people from being saved, all right? He's simply making a, a statement, a fact. And the idea is we should enter in because we need to be looking for it and we need to enter in at that straight gate because 
wide is the gate. I mean, the gate that most people go through is very easy. In fact, they're just going merrily along the way of their life and they go through it. It's wide, it's, you know, it's broad, it's... But the straight gate, he says it's hard to find. We've got to be looking for it. Now, that's a result of the Holy Spirit convicting us and truth of the Word of God in our hearts that we're interacting with that we're looking for it, okay? But we have to look for it and find it, and we have to go through it then. That's the point of faith, is going through that gate. And the result of that is eternal life. The result of not finding that gate and continuing on the broad way going into the wide gate is destruction, he says. And he makes a comparison. Many are on that one, and few are on this one. That's what Jesus said. I'm not making that up. That's what he said. Okay? Now, turn over. i got to find out where I even put these. There we go. Look at it later in chapter 7. All right, verse 24. Again, these are the words of Jesus. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken them unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now notice what Jesus says. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, uh, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And actually, I skipped over part of what I was going to read, beginning in verse 21. Jesus is saying, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and thy name have done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. There's a lot of things you could talk about with these verses here. But again, this is a warning from the Lord Jesus about missing eternal life. That's what the whole purpose of the passage is, right? And he says there's going to be many people that miss it, expecting to have it. I mean, he says many are going to say in that day, but notice what they're claiming. Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? All right? When Jesus says the differences, in fact, of the two houses, the one that stood and the one that fell, what, are the, what, what is the difference in those houses? Okay, and what does Jesus say that foundation is? Okay, he says in verse 24, uh, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine... All right, stop for a second. And then down in verse 26, And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine... So hearing him, that's the same both occasions, right? The difference is in verse 24, He that heareth and doeth them... Down in verse 26, He that heareth and doeth them not. Now again... It's not a matter of we got to work in order to be saved. But the point being is we trust him and in a way that's doing what he says. Okay, But it's faith will result in obedience to him, but it's doing what Jesus says, not what we think. And the guy building his house on the same, he was taking a shortcut, right? 
He was doing the easy way, so to speak. He neglected a lot of things, common sense, and, uh, but he neglected the important thing of having the rock as his foundation. The rock is Christ, okay? And we got to quit here because it's a minute past. Um, maybe we'll pick back up here next week because there's a lot here yet that I really wanted to try to touch on because um, we haven't really even got to the good passages yet. But this is a serious matter, all right? And again, it's not a matter of, you know, trying to scare people into things and all. That's not the point. But the point is we, we need to understand the seriousness of salvation and the seriousness of that relationship to him. I mean, the consequences of not having it are super serious, all right? And there's a seriousness about the whole thing in order to be saved. It's not some flippant thing, you know, that, oh, yeah, well, sure, we'll do this and blah, blah, blah. No. It's a serious, serious thing. Now, I got to stop, okay? But let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for salvation in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would... My desire, and I know Pastor Brinker's desire and many folks in here, the desire is that everyone in here would have that salvation. Lord, help us not to miss it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.